I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Thank you so much for coming. I'm going to read four poems and then I'll introduce Brenda and ask Brenda to read. And she's going to read from across the books that are collected in Liquid Flesh. And then we're going to have a nice chat, I hope. And that's how it's going to run. <laughs> so I wanted to start by reading a poem by the poet Roddy Lunsden. So um, some of you will know that Roddy passed away in 2020. And he's basically the reason why I know Brenda's poems. Uh, He introduced me to her poetry back in, I think it was 2007, 2006, when I was part of his City Lit class. um, And I was just absolutely captivated by Brenda's writing. And I was like, I fucking want to be a poet now. (laughs) Like, that was the thing that did it for me. Um... And he was a Brenda Shaughnessy mega fan. Uh, He uh, wrote poems kind of in her voice, but he also wrote poems inspired by people in her life, including um, Brenda and Craig's daughter, Simone. Um, So I'm going to read Roddy's poem from his last book, uh, So Glad I'm Me, called Simone's Cookie. So she eats it and wonders why it's gone. Our predictive providers have divided such an ontology. A well-knitted rope of such thought is strung across the span. She eats it. Groucho fiddles with a gag. Kierkegaard delves its inner workings. Is there cookie or is there cookie a meltdown? The step is a place for chewing on stuff. Stuff. Such priss to call it that, when it is everything. I'm thinking about everything. Let me. I have erred towards the disparu and have returned, buzzed, mildly majestic. Half of that everything which I have lost is lost to recapture. Here is the business. You sit the step and you see down cookie. But logic pokes its fingers in your ribs. It blows you as a soap bubble is blown. You remember awfulness, a sad station you once waited on, or the acre of chaos which pretends to be our understanding. So often I have been halfway through cookie and have not seen the punchline winging in. Do we offer the object identity or a mind swings slow open? perfect its answer. The knots are too sturdy, a summer's warm. Other stuff takes the mind, a book, a bird. Parmedanese sweated but loved the sun. Girl, you ate the cookie and also are the cookie. 
And then I'm just going to read a few of my poems. And I thought I'd choose ones that I could imagine speaking to Brenda's poems in some way, um, because that felt like a nice, a nice way to go about it. Um, and Brenda's got this poem, which I kind of read as an elegy for the fashion designer Alexander McQueen, which she's going to read later. So I'm so pleased about that. And in my book, I wrote some centos um, formed from things that fashion designers had said. And Alexander McQueen has always been one of those designers that I found so interesting. And I went to see the Savage Beauty exhibition at the V&A a few years ago and literally had to run out of the building because I was so shaken by it. So this poem is called <clears throat> There is Blood Beneath Every Layer of Skin. I want a picture of my head exploding. Violence is an awful runway. It's an energy you can never stop. I'm a serious player, a surgeon of the archetypes. I'll just burn the interpretation down. I couldn't fathom dying before the world. It takes an intelligent person to communicate an illusion. I made a pact. I wasn't going to look the sea in the eyes. I want the hills, red, blue and unattainable. It is not modern to suffer. Bliss is quite traumatic. Love is a costume with a deadly meaning. Myself, my ego, we know what we're striving for. My personal extravaganza. One of the poems, um, in fact, the opening poem of the Octopus Museum, which is one of the books collected in here, has a line in it, which is, I was a woman alone in the sea. Don't tell anybody, I tell myself. And so I'm going to read my poem, which has a strange um, connection, I guess, to, to that that I didn't see until today when I was looking through my own poems. I do not need the sea to love me back. I went to the sea. It was a nearby calamity I had a way with. I felt it on me like the breath of a cold baby. It shimmied like voile over a warm radiator. I lay down on the pebbles. I wanted to have the muscle of a limpet to adhere and never be washed away. I stood up because I enjoy the uncertainty of pebbles. I let my body flood my body and stared hard at the flimsy horizon. I waited for the sea to notice me, but the sea never notices anyone. And I'm going to finish with a poem um, called Two Cats. And the reason I want to read this is because one of the things I really love in Brenda's poems is um, the way that she writes about the domestic space. And my domestic space includes two cats. Cat one sat at the window where recently I'd moved a small sky blue for my table. She looked out through the gaps in condensation, which resembled a puckering like stretch marks, her fascinations, small birds, occasional insects. The vet had diagnosed her as anxious and depressed, and though this caused me great shame, I like to think when at the window... She had a sense of peace and better understood her part in the world. Cat 2 restricted herself to my bed in the furrow between duvet and pillows. 
Sometimes I'd come home to tufts of fur on the bedspread and I couldn't be sure to whom it belonged. That the cats might hate each other was a concern. I whispered love to both cats and tried to pay them equal attention. The vet prescribed a hormone diffuser to take the edge off their fretfulness and I worried about its effect on me. I had trouble both sleeping and waking and was often in tears. Cat 2 seemed to sense this and would settle on top of me, pinning me into a dream, while Cat 1 lay on the sofa, grooming herself obsessively. So beautiful. Are you done? No, I was just going to say, now it's Brenda. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That was beautiful. I loved hearing those. Um, I think I remember seeing this, uh, reading the Simone Cookie poem before. Um, The Simone in question is here. Yeah. Still into cookies. Um, And thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. It's such a joy to get to read poems here with Amy and with with you. Um, I... Haven't been here in five years. Yeah, five years. Um, and I'm thinking about Roddy a lot, missing missing him. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and start. Uh, Amy requested that I read a poem from each book that I've written. But now I don't know. It is really weird to have like six books of your, over your life sort of selected. I, I picked the poems, but still I look at it and I go, who, how, who, I guess it's me. Um, I'm going to start with something pretty simple. I don't know. I don't know how many times I have to do this before I stop being nervous. <laughs> I'm nervous every single time. I, I remember when we first met and I was like, God, I can't believe I've met you. I was sort of squealing across the table. You were like, it's just me. I'm Brenda. I'm your friend. And I was like, okay. So, yeah, it's just us. We are friends. Oh, you're my friends. Okay. All right. Um, This is a poet's poem. If it takes me all day, I will get the word freshened out of this poem. I put it in the first line, then moved it to the second, and now it won't come out. It's stuck. I'm so frustrated. So I went out to my little porch, all covered in snow, and watched the icicles drip as I smoked a cigarette. Finally, I reached up and broke a big, clear spike off the roof with my bare hand and used it to write a word in the snow. I wrote the word snow. I can't stand myself. Um, So I have one sister and she's kind of this isn't being recorded is it she's kind of annoying um and there have been times when I would think like I gotta call my sister but then I would call her and then she'd be like talking about what she bought at Target or talking about some other parent that was annoying to her and I'd be like this is I wish I had another sister to call someone else that would have a more interesting conversation. And I also horribly one time did a reading to which I invited my one sister. And was, this was on the sort of the, the playlist, and I kind of was going to read it, and I started reading it, and then I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> Couldn't stop then. I mean, I, I just, but I usually have a, an intro similar to this one about how she's annoying. And so I had to say, like, I have only one sister, and she's so amazing, and she's here. But really, I wish I had more sisters. 
I wish I had more sisters, enough to fight with, and still have plenty more to confess to, embellishing the fight so that I look like I'm right, and then turn all my sisters one by one against my sister. One sister will be so bad, the rest of us will have a purpose in bringing her back to where it's good with us, and we'll feel useful and she'll feel loved. Then another sister will have a tragedy, and again, we will unite in our grief, judging her much less than we did the bad sister. This time it was not our sister's fault. This time it could have happened to any of us, and in a way it did. We all know she wasn't the only sister to suffer. We all suffer with our choices, and we all have our choice of sisters. My sisters will seem like a bunch of alternate me, all the ways I could have gone. I could see how things pan out without having to do the things myself. The abortions, the divorces, the arson, swindles, poison jelly... But who could say they weren't myself? We're so close. I mean, who can tell the difference? I could choose to be a fisherman's wife since I'd be able to visit my sister in her mansion, sipping bubbly for once, braying to the others who weren't invited. I could be a traveler, a seer, a poet, a potter, a fly swatter. None of those choices would be as desperate as they seem now. My life would be like one finger on a hand, a beautiful, usable, ringed, rung, piano and dishpan hand. There would be both more and less of me to have to bear. None of us would be forced to be stronger than we could be. Each of us could be all of us. The pretty one, the smart one, the bitter one, the unaccountably happy for no reason one. I could be, for example, the hopeless one, and the next day my sister would take my place. And I would hold her up until my arms gave way, and another sister would relieve me. Yeah, the other thing about that is that whenever people meet my sister, they're like, there are two of you? (laughs) Because we sound exactly alike. We used to look similar, but we actually sound exactly alike still. So you're not supposed to use tarot cards to give you ideas for poems. You're not supposed to use them as a prompt. They don't like it. I don't know if you know this. They will give you bad Someone poems. Someone needs to tell some people on the internet. Yeah. They, they will give you bad poems. They'll, like, so I was trying to, trying to use them in this bad way, this way that they don't like to be used. And I kept getting bad cards. Like, write a poem about strength or justice or the world. It just was, they were, you see how there does not, you can't, there's no way in. This like, that's too big of a topic. And then I got the moon. And so I wrote this poem. It's a hate poem to the moon. Oh. (laughs) There are plenty of love poems. So I'm over the moon. I don't like what the moon is supposed to do. Confuse me, ovulate me, spoon feed me longing. A kind of ancient date rape drug. So I'll howl at you, moon. I'm angry. I'll take back the night. Using me to swoon at your questionable light. You had me chasing you, the world's worst lover, over and over, hoping for a mirror, a whisper, insight. But you disappear for nights on end with all my erotic mysteries and my entire unconscious mind. How long do I try to get water from a stone? It's like having a bad boyfriend in a good band. Better off alone. (laughs) I'm going to write hard and fast into you, Moon, face-fucking, something you wouldn't understand. You, with no swampy sexual promise, but what we glue onto you. 
That's not real. You have no begging cunt. No panties ripped off and the crotch sucked. No lacerating spasms sending electrical sparks through the toes. Stars have those. What do you have? You're a tool, Moon. Now, Noon, there's a hero. The obvious sun. No bullshit. The enemy of poets and lovers, sleepers and creatures. But my lovers have never been able to read my mind. I've had to learn to be direct. It's hard to learn that, hard to do. The sun is worth ten of you. You don't hold a candle to that complexity. That solid craze. Like an animal carcass on the road at night, picked out by crows, haunting walkers and drivers. Your face regularly sliced up by the moving frames of car windows. Your light is drawn, quartered. Your dreams are stolen. You change shape and turn away, letting night solve all night's problems alone. I mean, you, it's a pretty good case against the moon there. I know. <laughs> it's like sometimes it's there. Other times it's like half there. Okay. Um, this is from my first book. Um, this was like my first published poem, really. I think it came out in the Yale Review in 1998, in the previous millennium. It's called Your One Good Dress. And I'm talking about those like big dresses that are like sort of, you know, just kidding. They're not like those big ball gowns from the 17th century. They are from, I guess, sort of what I'm wearing now. Your One Good Dress should never be light. That kind of thing feels like a hundred shiny-headed waifs backlit and skeletal approaching. Dripping and in unison murmuring, we are you. No. And the red dress, think about it, redress is all neck hole. The brown is a big wet beard with, of course, a backslit. You're only as sick as your secrets. There is an argument for the dull chic, the dirty olive, and the cinderella. But those who exhort it are only part of the conspiracy. Shimmer, shimmer, they'll say. Lush, mush. Do not listen. It's a part of the anti-obvious movement and its sheer matricide. Ask, ask your mom. It would kill her if you were U-G-L-Y. And it's a crime to wonder, am I? In the dark, a dare, am I now? You put on your Nina, your Pinta, your Santa Maria. Make it simple to last your whole life long. Make it black, glassy, or deep. Your body is opium, and you are its only true smoker. This black dress is your one good dress. Bury your children in it. Visit your pokey hometown friends in it. Go missing for days. Taking it off never matters. That just wears you down. There's a typo. <laughs> There's always a typo. It's not the only one. (laughs) And this is a brand new one from a new collection that's coming out um, in spring. It's called Tanya. And that's a book that's um, about my college, my first college roommate, whose name was Tanya. So this is a recent one. Previously unpublished except for in this book. Moving Far Away. I hear they're trying to make borders in water now, to declare it a place, impose a shape, dissolve the solvent. It's no solution to our probable problem. I'll never see you again, I say on my cell, said to myself. We'll be well below alone now. Can I be a good friend to you if I move so far away? Haven't seen you in years, but I like a rough edge, island broken off a big bully. 
I'll use up all my firewood on you. Sorcery, what turned into me? An iron foot, a leg of log, a wish for symmetry. My fire handed down to me by cauldron witches in their longish, unauthorized youth. Broken crest rising, rinsed of desire, full of pull and push, no rush to finish or to vanish, as if water didn't wave and bring tidings and answer me like an animal, jealous, crushed, washing herself. I'll never forget. You told me never to forget, but I did. Your voice, a needle threaded, heading for my open wound, already burned clean for a clean split. This is artless. It's a weird form. It's in tercets, and the last word of each tercet has the word less in it. There's also a flaw. It is not flawless. Artless is my heart. A stranger berry there never was. Tartless. Gone sour in the sun. In the sunroom or moonroof. Roofless. No poetry. Plain. No fresh special recipe to bless. All I've ever made with these hands and life. Less substance, more rind. Mostly rim and trim. Meatless, but making much smoke in the old smokehouse, no less. Fatted from the day, overripe and even toxic at eve. Nonetheless, in the end, if you must know, if I must bend, wasteless, to that excruciation. No marvel, no harvest left me speechless. Yet I find myself, somehow, with heart, aloneless, with heart, fighting fire with fire, Flightless, that loud hub of us, meat stub of us, beating us senseless. Spectacular in its way, its way of not seeing, congealing, dayless, but in everydayness. In that hopeful haunting, a lesser way of saying in darkness, there is a silencelessness for the pressing question. Heart, what art you? War, star, Part or less, playing a part, staying apart from the one who loves, loveless. I don't think that I can read our family on the run. I'm gonna okay. I'm gonna switch to um, uh, to identity and community because you yeah. brought it up. Great. Um, so this is a true story. I really did go to Hawaii to write. And I wanted to go in the ocean. And so I went all the way over there on the plane. I took, it was expensive. It took forever. And I finally got there. And I got to the ocean side. And then I couldn't go in. I was, like, scared. I was like, oh, wait. Are there sharks? Is it okay? Jellyfish? Like, I just suddenly got terrified. It's like I had all the time to research. I could have, I don't know. So this is a poem that sort of starts with me. A spoiler, I, I do eventually. But, um, but this poem starts with sort of that idea. Um, like, why? Why am I like this, really? Identity and community. Or there is no I in C. I don't want to be surrounded by people. Or even one person. But I don't want to always be alone. The answer is to become my own pet. <laughs> Hungry for plenty in a plentiful place. There's no true solitude. Only, only. At Seaside, I have that familiar sense of being left out. 
too far to glean the secret. How go in? What an inhuman surface the sea has, always open. I'm too afraid to go in. I give no yes. Full of shame, but refuse to litter ever. I pick myself up. Wind has power. Sun has power. What is power's source? There's no privacy outside. We've invaded it. There's no life outside empire. All paradise is performance for people who pay. Perhaps I'm an invader and feel I haven't paid. What a waste to have lost everything in mind. Watching three mom-like women try to go in, I'm green. I want to join them. But they are not my women. I join them, apologizing. They splash away from me. They're their pod. People are alien. I'm an unknown story, erasing myself with seawater. There goes my honey and fog, my shoulders and legs. What could be queerer than this queer tug lust for what already is, who already am, but other of it? Happens? That kind of desire anymore? Oh, I am that queer thing, pulling and greener than the blue sea. I'm new with envy. Beauty washing over itself. No reflection, no claim, nothing to see. If there's anything bluer than the ocean, it's its greenness. It's its turquoise blood mixing me. I was a woman alone in the sea. Don't tell anybody. I tell myself. Don't try to remember this. Don't document it. Remember, write down to not document it. <laughs> And I'll finish with McQueen is dead. Long live McQueen. It, it hits different now that your queen, queen is, is dead. dead. Yeah. Um, and it's about 70 years long. No. <laughs> McQueen is dead. Long live McQueen. There were seven colors of mourning. One was lilac. That kind of blossom always has its crowd, fanned out, surrounded by crushing likeness, smell of itself. Fabric has to breathe, at least 2% like skin. A little milk fat, elastin, even in the gravest print. Not knowing how to grieve can poison like a directionless dart. And although fabric has been known to swirl and clasp, be clasped, without mother there's only art. To hug the body, a swath, anathema, magical, 70s lace and space dust, all too far gone to truly love. But to twist it, to learn to hate want, to sway, tear, burrow, be borrowed, everybody's animal, to float like water seeking its own, stampede like buffalo seeking its hide, face painted on torso, on horsehair, on chesty silk. It's a death mask for the stigmata slashes of the model's body. I don't think I understand what studying is. I listen, I read, I remember, I absorb, I let myself be moved and changed. Is that studying? Never five-fingered, you never use them all. Gloves will be like hooves, split-footed, hand-stitched. When concept perceived, a womanly gist, let's say, a curve of mind, is more than itself, surpassing all ma. I make it part of me. I take it in, drink a corrosive. I let it overtake me, change everything it can, lip to tip to rim. My eyes just drink the fabric that covers each surface of this world. Suck up the plastic through a polished straw. 
Everything's inspiration. Trees reflected in windows, on buildings, distorted buses, endless frames, all too glass. So much lens. Textures so tall. And once you start to see things this way, visions of performance. Shocking and true after all these centuries. A Shakespearean volta, like nectar, is poison to the occasional queen bee. Everything actually is blurred, not just how you see. Glasses and shoes are solutions to problems that are real problems. That of blurred world. That of touching the ground. A glass corset for the heart to see out its chest. For without glasses, the eye better sees the wind by feeling it and closing against its grains, its grasses. For without shoes, my feet become shoes. When I am really feeling, I get very tired. I fall asleep for the 17th time on the unfinished skirt of glass eyes and lemon zest hemmed first, grown last. I experience the world as infinite invertedness, no holes broken, just potential fragments straining skull-like at the seams. Anything could give, but no, just takes and takes and takes. I've been trying to write the words I cried, cried really and wetly and for good. Old-fashioned writing with intense excitement. The spell of quill and ink spill quelled. What is beautiful? What is terrifying? What is absurd in me? Every possibility that colors are believable, various, not that mirage I thought I'd seen, and can be held apart as real, too exterior, distinct from each other wildly as sparks, to seaweed or flower to meteor. It collapsed, can't draw it, can't cut it out of itself. There's no color but what's already inside the eye, no power or invention or new way to wake up in the morning outside the seeing mechanism, our own orbs. Yet I can't see myself. I can never see you again. I can only see from inside my skull, and when I look down, I close everything, not just my eyes. I wrap my own tender nether flesh in calfskin leather so buttery, melted back together like so, a newborn softened in its own mother's milk. I awoke in a panic. No ma, no ma, to the smallest day yet. I dreamed, I already dreamed all the dreams I'd get. This morning, I dressed in my last dress's last dress, fit for only a genteel gothic murder, covered up well, airtight, would only fit the stabbed one after bloodlet, then like a glove. Who wears it and where? I will, from the bed to the chair. Headrest, clothes horse, designer and model, mutually orbiting the best metaphor for bodiless idea, amorphous, amorous, Amoral. Immortal. Red is dead, said Blue. To you too? Hindquarter gauze with silver face clamp and sickened ears pulled, unsculled, broken back piece, shadow sensible by other than sight. To smell a shadow, to strike it, to trace it later, to measure a body by its line. Lights so quiet. You'd think it's cuttings, it's, it's edge hole. Those mousy children would speak at least a bit. They run like a stocking down the leg of the mind. Why not quieter then? There is no body without life. There is no mind without body. 
There is no without. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. That was long. Oh, that was amazing, Brenda. Thank you so much. So I've got some questions All right. that I'd like to ask. Yeah. <laughs> Are we acting awkward now? Or is yeah. That, is that the I'm thing? Just, okay. I'm just like, you know, it just feels like a weird transition. Yeah, yeah. You know, from I, I feel awkward too. From listening to talking. Right. So I was just thinking about when you're preparing for a poetry reading and you're looking through your book, you could be like, eh, not that one. It's yeah. like not a reader or um, bored of that one or actually secretly hate that poem, wish it wasn't in the book. Um, and you can kind of t- test the vibe in the room and all of those kind of things. But choosing poems for a selected feels like a completely different experience and encounter with your work, which you've got to apply a different type of logic to. So I'm interested in how you went about going back through your your books and choosing which ones should be in this particular book. Yeah, I um lately with picking I this just came out and I've only read from it a couple times. Um and I'm I'm drawn towards the shorter poems because I have had that experience many times when I've committed to reading a lo- slightly longer poem in the middle that I'm like this was a mistake. <laughs> this is too long. How many more pages and I'm secretly panicking going like I can't just stop. I should have read shorter poems. So now when I flip through it, I think, like, the shorter, the better. But I don't know. For this, for this reading, I, I was really stumped. I, was really, I felt very stymied until I talked to you a little bit beforehand. And you having some ideas about what you wanted to talk about was really helpful because then I got to... There was a poem that I was going to read called Our Family on the Run, which is about sort of imagining like the worst case scenario where my husband Craig and I and our kids would have to sort of like run and be sort of on the, on the lamb. And how would we do that? My son is in a wheelchair. So like, you know, how does that work? And that poem is kind of always in the back of my mind in every poetry reading. But one time I read it at a poetry reading when Cal was there Mm. and he like, he didn't like it. He was, he was, I was humbled, like, why why am I reading this terrible scenario where we're like, you know, in a terrible crisis and having Mm -hmm. to run and probably not going to make it? It just seemed like a cruel, strange thing. And so I realized that when you read a poem to people at a reading, you're like bringing up other worlds that you were in. They were imaginary worlds, but now you're sort of presenting them. And I can't help but have this uncanny feeling where I'm like, but they weren't there. They're not going to, how, how can they possibly understand no matter how I write this? It's just not going to be understandable. So I'm always very moved when I read it, and then there's some kind of, any kind of response, which is, I think, one of the reasons why I rely heavily on humor. I try, I need that sort of, I need something, like some kind of a response. Otherwise, I'm not sure if, you're, if I have pulled a tale, a, a, a turn of phrase, a whole scenario from another universe, and I haven't adequately translated it. Yeah, but it's, I guess it's different, isn't it, when you're asking people to read it and encounter it in their own own time like right because I speak too fast and then I stutter and then I like I I have a whole other narrative going on as I'm reading it which is like this is too long this is whatever and so yeah it's a different thing than asking somebody to look at it in their own silence in their own space yeah and when you were thinking about this this book did you try and identify what you thought were 
I don't know, like a range of poems that represented every single facet of your work as, God, a, as, no. as a whole? Or were you like, just going to put the smash hits I mean, in? How can what, I just, what, yeah. was the, what was the thinking? I don't know, Amy. I don't know. I just, I thought, I mean, something that you mentioned before about like the idea of a dress or mm. clothing being, that's something that like glimmered. Um, when I was putting it together, when I was looking through everything that I wrote, and I thought, there's so much about that. And I think it's so much about clothing and and stitching and the idea of a wound and stitches. Like, there's all kinds of metaphors that have to do with, mm. with clothing, and it's throughout all the books. And it's because my mother was a seamstress, you know, and I hadn't even put that together. Mm-hmm. Like, isn't that strange? My mother has been a seamstress, and she made all of our clothes when I was a child for, uh, for as long as I've been alive. I've always, it's been her... She's an amazing artist of, of that, truly. But it didn't occur to me that that was a major undercurrent for all yeah. of my poems for 23 years. Like, how come we don't know what we're writing? I don't understand this. Yeah, and I, I found that really beautiful when I was reading um, The Selected because I don't think I'd appreciated that before and it was only by going from poem to poem. You know, I, was, I could pull a thread through, right. every thread, in, right. in, um, in your poems and I found that really satisfying. You know, even down to the, the cover image of the book is a painting by your friend Jessica yeah. Rankin um, which is itself inspired by a poem called Thread Sons. Yeah, Thread Sons or Sun Threads. Um, it was one of those by Paul Salan. Um, and this painting has this stitching in it. And I kind of, I love it when there is this knottiness that occurs through on lots of different levels mm. in a book. Mm. Um, and I guess that makes me <coughs> want to ask a little bit about the influence of visual art mm. on your writing. Um, your first book, Interior was Sudden Joy, has the influence of Dorothea Tanning and, and her artwork is on the cover of that book and you've got Jessica's artwork mm-hmm. on the cover of this book and one of the poems at the end is called The Artist Jessica Rankin. So it's obviously this, this really big, powerful, generative influence for you and I'd love you to talk a little bit about that and also maybe talk a little bit about... Um, taking up painting yourself and yeah. the kind of pleasure of being yeah. engaged in art form as an amateur. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't understand. I don't really think of myself as an ekphrastic poet, but I think that the experience of looking at art, because I also saw the, the Savage Beauty um, exhibition at the, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art when it was there. I think it was the very last day. There were lines around, like, two mm. blocks to get in. It was such a very, very hard-to-get-into exhibit. It was so... But I had just had, you're going to come up again, Simone. I had just had a C-section to deliver this one. And I had like a bandage around And I like hobbled into that exhibit. And I hobbled all the way through it because I had to see it. Why? Of all things. But I knew I had to see it. I don't know why, but it was absolutely devastating. Because it really did this thing where it was like, this, this visionary was able to see the body and was on it. And like kind of turn it all inside out. Like, you know, you can kind of. See, but it wasn't just organs that is the turning inside out. It's the soul, and that's the the dreams and the dreck and the nightmares that are coming that are coming out. And I think that that meant a lot to me because I felt like my first the yeah the, the Dorothea Tanning connection. You know, she was a surrealist, so a lot of that was the dreaming, the inside coming out and becoming visible, making 
um, nonsense, unformed thoughts, um, and the sort of the way that Dada sort of brought um, those ideas forward into visual pieces. Mm-hmm. That really struck me. Um, but but I think that I've always I've always loved making visual art. I've always loved drawing and painting, but I wasn't good enough at it. And it's something that I've struggled with for a lot of like thinking about writing an artist that like, well, do you get to do it at all if you're not good at it or if there's no guarantee you're going to be good at it? I just feel like we're under so much weird pressure. Like, you can't do anything unless you're going to be, unless you're going to excel. Like, what's the point? People mm-hmm. think, what's the point? So how do you get good at something that you're not already good at? I mean, unless you're like already born with specific kinds of like physical things, like you're Michael Phelps and have like that wingspan or whatever. <laughs> and so everyone's like, you're born to be a swimmer. So develop all those talents and develop the, the lung power and everything to become the best swimmer or whatever. But with art, I feel like if there isn't some, if someone doesn't say to you at some early point in your life, like, you are amazing at this. You're so good. You're just a natural. How are you supposed to just be like, I'm terrible at this, but I'm going to try anyway? How, how long are you supposed to do that? How long are you supposed to just like convince yourself that like, I mean, it just means that you're going to have to become like kind of an kind of a crazy person. You're like, I'm going to be an amazing poet. I'm going to be so great. Right now I'm terrible. Right now you can't see this, but I know. I mean, like, that's just, how are we supposed to become artists? How are we supposed to become anything? And also to become an artist, you have to have so much money. I mean, you can't, like, I don't think, I can't be like, I'm a 16-year-old person. I'm totally middle class. I have access to a few things, but I don't have access to, like, massive airplane hangar studios for my installation work. I don't have that. I'll never have it. I, I mean, I, why even why even imagine it? Why even imagine making it? Why even consider making sketches of it? Do you see what I mean? It's already cut off. And poetry, I'm sure people who here who write poetry, you know this. Like, all you need is a pencil, a freaking pencil. It's not even like technological. You don't need an Apple pen, an Apple pencil. You don't need a, so you don't need to use. You can just need a piece of paper, a bar napkin. And, like, borrow a pen from somebody and you're a poet. You could be. It's endless. It's, it's like, so open-ended. Of course. Like, that was a way to become an artist. But all the visual artists I know, their equipment's insane. It's ridiculous. Like, you have so much equipment. It costs so much money. Where do you put it? Like, what do you do with your drafts? We just delete them. You know, in old-fashioned days, people would, like, ball up their pieces of paper and throw them in the, in the waste basket, and they would pile up, and it was, like, all this evidence that they were a true artist. We just delete things now. But if I mean, I don't delete anything. But, you don't? You know, but, I mean, it's, you know, it's taking up a tiny, tiny bit of the, the cloud, so it's fine. The cloud is not up there. The cloud is in big, coiled, like... The cloud is down here? The cloud... Oh, my God, this is so horrible. My student told me this. The cloud is in huge tubes under the ocean. I mean, that's messed up. I know. I <laughs> it's like the heat coming off of it is poisoning all the... All the okay. It's not I'm going like, to take my things out. No, cover. take them out. <laughs> Ball them up like this and throw them over your shoulder like in old-fashioned times. <laughs> anyway, there's a long way of saying that, like, I love all the arts. I love music. I, you can't make music unless you know music, unless you learn it, unless you've, you know, you've, you've absorbed and inhaled and... Have a, and developed an ear, and you know the scale, and you know, you know how to read it. You know how to, you know the language. So that's where you have to start. Um, with poetry, you have I, I had this head start. I already knew I already knew the language, so I could already find a familiarity with my materials. 
And that is really the only reason, because otherwise I think I would have tried to become an installation artist. <laughs> do you worry about being good at poetry now? Like, do I worry about being good at poetry? Yeah, yes. like when you're writing, you're like... Yes, every single time. I have this image in my mind of the pencil point or the pen, whatever, but I still think of these terms. The pencil point being like, everything has to be, everything's coming out of here. Like my entire life is coming out of this one little point. And this, my whole lifeline is literally this, this line. And it's like, what if it's bad? What if I choose the wrong words? What if I choose, what if I write a bad poem? And it's like everything depends on this one, this, this one thing. Um, it often is. And that's the great lesson. It's like, it often is. Oh, I can just go, <laughs> worry about it, start over again. But so the blank, the blank page, the white blank page is always the blank canvas. It's always the silence. And it's only because I, somewhere along the line, started to believe in an endlessness to, to possibly fill it, mm-hmm. that I can start anything at all. So it's only because there's this belief in that. If there's not a belief that there's an endlessness, then you don't pick up a paintbrush, you don't pick up a pen, you don't try anything, because why would you render? Why would you make something else? You would just be, like, trying to deal when, with this. When you say the endlessness, do you mean, like an endlessness of the the motivation or endlessness of the imagination imagination okay yeah there's like endless things you can write about and that's what we know about art and yet we haven't been given permission mm. to to access it i mean i'm not a good painter but i could be if i continue to work at it do you need to be there's no no and i don't But, like, it's the possibility. It's like, what if I paint this and it's just okay? Mm. Like, what an incredible relief. Like, maybe that's, maybe that's good. Maybe just, the, maybe just the act of making it, just the act of making a painting is in itself poetry. Mm-hmm. Maybe in itself it's a putting, it's, a, it's an inscription of that moment, you know, that time. I chose it. One of the things I found so interesting when I was reading conversations you've had with other people was your, not a disownment, but basically you critique one of your poems, which is in the Octopus Museum called Our Women People. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a long poem. It's very, very ambitious <laughs> and strange um, and it's kind of structured as though it's um, I, I mean I read it it's, it's structured like it was a research proposal but it's kind of in the voice of like the octopus the octopus overlords the yeah. octopus overlords trying to interrogate this question of our women people um, and you write about um, sorry you you talked about it and you were basically like it's a flawed poem it's incomplete and I was so interested because I very rarely encounter poets talking about their work in that way, mm-hmm. like saying, um, I, especially like a more recent poem, like you see it like from, you know, like a lot, uh, older mm-hmm. poems, but saying, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not happy about the poem. I can't read it. Don't like it. Um, and I was just really interested to, to know <laughs> how did that experience, I guess, of writing and publishing that poem, which you didn't really want in the book, but, but your editor persuaded to put you, to put it in the book. Has that changed the way in which you write now or approach a poem? Do you push through that discomfort when you think that 
a poem, you might not be able to like do a poem justice, like the, achieve the intent that you set out to achieve. Yeah, I'm just interested yeah. in that idea of like poetic failure, if yes, you like. Totally. I mean, well, but the, there's a difference between uh, because I've I've written many many failed poems that don't make it anywhere close to a, even a second draft. They just they're failed poems. I do have the whole, you know, I have that. But this was different. This was a poem that I wrote. Um, it's in the Octopus Museum, which is the book that my my last collection, in which we destroy the oceans and the octopus, and then we sort of feel bad for the octopuses, so we build them these sort of salinized tanks on Earth, and then we they take over. They're really good um, at getting into the grid, and they take over everything. And now we are there. Um, we are sort of there. Um, like that subject. They were their subjects. Yeah. yeah. So now they're trying, they're going, octopuses are going into human archives and trying to figure out, wait, this species, they're trying to understand the Octopus Museum is a museum of humans. It's made by the octopuses. And that whole poem is, is in this, this book where it describes that whole, that whole scene. But they, they're trying to figure out, like, it seems like this particular species, the human species, doesn't consider their women exactly a whole entire part of, they're not really fully people. So let's look at their documents and see if that's the case. And then document after document, system after system, example after example, it seems like women keep coming up not quite as being considered fully human by this by our species. So it was a way for me to deal with the fact that that's true, that that's whether that is sort of what the research has shown <laughs> Uh, like there's a kind of, I mean, I don't know if you know about what's happening in um, the United States at the, in the Supreme Court. Oh, they overturned Roe v. Wade, which was the women's a woman's right for, uh, to um, bodily autonomy. It's gone, um, and that's an, an essential component of being a person is being able to decide what you're going to do with your own body. So it was incredibly painful because I was so afraid that it was true. Mm-hmm. You know, like I don't want to write something that that bleak and then find out two years later that like oh right the worst case scenario is actually coming Mm. true a mere couple years later so when it comes to poetic failure in a way you don't I don't want to predict anything I you know I I wrote the Octopus Museum because I thought that I was going to present the worst case scenario that would never come to pass and we would just be, it was just, I, I could just be paranoid. I could just have, I'd be a paranoid poet. That's fine. Um, I'm terrified that, that, it's gotten, that it's gotten so bad. And I, I think my, my, my feeling about what is a failed poem or what is a successful poem has changed because I feel like my country, our, our sociality, like our... Our society, I think it's failed. Hmm. It's failed. It's failed us. And so what I think about poetry now is I'm not as interested in looking at each phrase and making sure that I say it perfectly. Making sure that I am so, that that you all see how very, very smart I am. How, How perfect all my lines are. Like, how great all those all those individual lines are that add up to something so so great. I, don't, I, I think that's kind of bullshit now. I look back at some of this old stuff and I go, young Brenda needed to prove that she was smart, mm. needed to prove that she knew what she was talking about and knew how to write a poem, knew how to end a poem, knew how to land it. 
knew how to fly the plane, knew how to do all of it. And now I feel like, what's the good of that? So what? I know how to do that. Do I know how to like actually like fly a plane? Maybe we need to fly. Maybe we need to learn how to fly a plane. But now I'm kind of interested in preserving the moment. Now I'm kind of interested in like what what was in my head? What was thought at that moment? I feel like our moments on Earth are so precious that just being able to write down what happened in a way I almost don't want to edit it. I want to. I kind of am starting to feel like this is a true. Um, gestural painting. Ge- you know, this is the gesture that happened at that moment, and changing it might not make it better. It might make it um, of some other moment. Yeah, and it's interesting because if you look at the book, you can see this like these controlled kind of columns of poem that just spread and spread throughout the book and they get more unruly and right, right. chewy. And I, I just found that so interesting. No, totally. It's like the beginning of the, of the earlier books is just like, they did got to do this well. This has to be good. And the next is like, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> no, I do give a fuck. I really do. I mean, it's that I don't give a fuck about seeming perfect. I give a fuck yeah. about what is, what am I saying at this moment? Of all the things you can say, what are you choosing to say? Yeah, that's I think that's the about. best thing to not give a fuck about, in my opinion, is, is being perfect. Right. Because you're, you're definitely not going to be perfect. It's not going to so happen. It's, it's a lot of wasted energy going into that yeah, it's desire, bullshit. isn't there? Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, can I just say a huge thank you to, to Claire from the LRB for organising this. Thank you. Total pleasure. I'm going to say thank you as well. Is that working? I don't know. <laughs> thank you all for coming. It's been a, a total joy. Amy, as always, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to your book next year. Oh, thank you. And Brenda, thank you so much for your for reading and for, that, and for the conversation. It's so generous. It's brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.